Now, in pursuit of the big ones, my brother Rhett has decided to go out in a rickety little 14-foot boat to fish the fisheries of Woods Hole. I mean, look at that thing. The dog's cute. The boat, not so much. I've gone out with him in that boat, and just to be very clear, I think I'm being generous when I say the word rickety with that boat. I think that thing could flip over just about due to anything. I think a small gust of wind could blow that boat and capsize it on us. You might be thinking to yourself, well, why in the world would you go out in a boat like that? And the only thing that I can say in response is we just want to be where the fish are. We want to catch them. Now, when we're heading out into the fisheries of Woods Hole, there's several dangers that are present, but there's one danger above all the other dangers that is dangerous to us. It's not the sharks that are swimming around the boat. It's not the rogue waves that might come. It's not the storms that could whip up upon us. No, it's guys driving around in Grady Whites. Can we just take a moment and look at that beautiful thing up there? I want one of those. <laughs> yes, guys in Grady Whites, they go buzzing around the bay in those beautiful 24-foot boats with those 250 Yamaha four-stroke engines, and they send wakes out at us. And here we are in this little boat that would likely be sunk if someone shot a pea shooter at it. Now, the guys in Woods Hole, the fishermen, like to call these guys Grady's. Grady's are the weekend warriors who have too much boat and too little sense of the etiquette of the ocean. They zoom around and they wake with little or no concern for the guys in the little boats just trying to catch a keepa. It's a big problem. A big problem. I think there's a parallel here with the spiritual life. Like these Grady's, uh, there are people zipping around in life. In fact, I would submit to you all of us, creating moral wakes by the way we live our life. You see this world that we're living in, we all have to share the ocean together. It's important that we consider one another in the decisions that we make. And that is kind of the root core of sin. Sin is always a relational damage. It doesn't consider God. It doesn't consider other people. It's a selfish disposition. Now, in the ocean, when you're zooming around in your Grady and you cause a wake in a no-wake zone and you shake up all the boats and you knock the little guys over and you damage boats... There's a responsibility that's attached to that type of living. The water police might come and get you. Well, the same is true in the spiritual life. When we wake in the spiritual life, we create damage. And there's a responsibility attached to that. I want you to open your Bibles with me to Nehemiah 5. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, there should be a blue Bible in the chair in front of you, and you can turn that to page 401, and you'll find yourself in the text with us this morning. Just to give you a little understanding of what we're working with here, the, the work on the wall has come to a grinding halt. All is not well. 
The people have been working towards the common purpose of building this wall for the sake of the glory of God, but there's a bunch of Grady's zipping around in Jerusalem, throwing out their wake with their sinful choices, and those choices have serious effects on the lives of others. So let's take a look at this text together and see what's going on here. We'll begin with the problem. Look at the problem in verses 1 through 5 with me. The text says, There arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there are those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on fields and on our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. Let's stop there. You might look at this passage and think to yourself, well, we have a good old-fashioned strike going on. Uh, The workers are getting a little disgruntled. They want better benefits. They want better retirement plans. But this is not what is happening here in this text. This is a cry for help. The people are saying basically, Nehemiah, we want to build this wall. We want to engage in God's work for the glory of God. But we've got a big problem on our hands here. We're starving Nehemiah, people can't eat walls. And Nehemiah, being the leader that he is, employs a significant leadership skill here at this moment. He takes time to listen. See, leadership principle number 16 is this, that leaders are good listeners. Nehemiah could have heard the concerns and he could have shrugged them off and went about doing his work said, good for you, figure it out, this is your problem. But instead, he takes a moment to pause and hear the entirety of their complaints. Do you know as a Christian, a believer in Jesus Christ, you're called to be a good listener? James 1, verse 19, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to be angry. Now that's like one of those verses that when I hear it, it sounds like a very simple principle until I try to do it. Because listening is a skill set. It requires patience, discipline, effort, intentionality. Stephen Covey, in his book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, explains that there's different levels of listening that people employ. He says, we may be ignoring another person, not really listening at all. I've definitely been in those types of conversations. We may practice pretending Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, right, sure. We might practice selective listening, only hearing certain parts of the conversation, particularly the parts that we want to hear. Or we may even practice attentive listening, paying attention and focusing energy on the words that are being said, but very few of us ever practice the fifth level, the highest form of listening, empathic listening. 
Covey continues, in empathic listening, you see the world the way they see the world. You understand their paradigm. You understand how they feel. I love what this author says next. The best ministry you might do today is to listen to someone's pain all the way to the bottom. Oh, if Christians would do a better job of listening. Now, Nehemiah practices listening here, and he hears the people's pain all the way to the bottom. Listen to what he hears. Look at verse 2. Some of the people had large families, and they were struggling to provide for them. Verse 3, others were mortgaging their properties due to inflation. And then verses 4 and 5, others could not pay back their debt. They were selling their children off to slavery. I mean, when you hear the, the situation and the problem, you're saying to yourself, this is miserable. What in the world is going on here? Nehemiah must be blaming himself a little bit. Maybe it has something to do with me building this wall and moving these people away from their agricultural life. But I would submit to you this morning that it has nothing to do with the building of the wall. The wall is just highlighting a deeper problem. In fact, we see certain factors. Look at verse 3. There was a famine. When you have a large influx of people into a city center and the soil has not been tilled to accommodate this new demand of people, now you've got a problem on your hands. But just add in an agricultural factor on top of that, like a drought, and it becomes a crisis. Verse 4 tells us that they were being taxed heavily. Artaxerxes is the world's most powerful man, and he is operating out of Susa. And some 800 miles away, his reach is so strong that he can pull away taxes from the people of Jerusalem. But verse 5 is probably the most troubling out of all the factors. Wealthy Jews were loaning to poorer Jews and charging them steep interest rates. What do we have going on here? It's good old-fashioned usury. These people are stepping on the backs of their own brothers. They're getting rich off of them. They have the means to put food on the table. They have the means, a little extra, to lend out money. And not only are they going to lend out the money, but they're going to get their due. Now, here's the other problem that's involved with this. Because in the ancient world, when a person could no longer afford their debt, they would sell themselves, basically, into indentured servitude. And so here are these people selling off their children into slavery. Verse 5 tells us that it might even be a little more disgusting than that that some of them are actually needing to sell off their daughters as second wives to these Jewish guys. I'll let your imagination go with that. I mean, this is an absolutely miserable, humiliating situation, and the people are crying out. Why is this allowed to happen? Aren't we all working on the same wall together? Isn't our blood just like their blood? Our sons like their sons? Our daughters like their daughters? Our sweat like their sweat? What can we do about it, Nehemiah? We're powerless. Who's going to stand up and fight for us? Now, I don't know what you do when you hear something like that. I would be fit to be tied. 
I mean, it would take three to four people to hold me back before I ran in there like a bull in the china shop. Nehemiah, though, really demonstrates some high-capacity leadership in this situation. You see, he has two choices here. He can either ignore the problem and allow it to continue to fester, or he can face it head-on. Notice what he does in the text, the confrontation. You see, people tend to approach conflict in different ways. Some avoid the conflict. I don't know if you've ever been around those types of people. The conversation gets direct. They shut down immediately, which is unhelpful. Other people are kind of like me. They're the bull in the china shop. They shoot first. They ask questions later. Also very unhelpful. But not Nehemiah. Leadership principle number 17. Leaders know how to handle conflict. If you want to be a leader, you must know how to handle conflict. Because guess what? Conflict is going to happen. Look at the steps that Nehemiah takes. The first step we'll notice in verses 6 and 7. He collects himself. It says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself. So he says in verse 6, a recognition of anger. I was very angry. And who can blame him, right? I think anger is probably one of the trickier emotions, both theologically and then in understanding it as it's happening to us. Theologically, for example, we might be uh, led to believe that anger in itself as an emotion is wrong. And we see all kinds of instances in the scripture that talks about the harmful effects of anger. Look at Proverbs 22.22 on the screen. An angry person starts fights. A hot-tempered person commits all kinds of sin. Anger can be turned destructive. But it's obviously not a wrong emotion because the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, expressed anger. I've always been interested in that. Why and for what reason would Jesus get angry? When was anger permissible, so to speak? Let's look at a couple of uh, passages where Jesus expressed anger. If you look at John chapter 2, Jesus is in the temple, and he walks in, and there's this money racket going on in God's temple, and Jesus gets enraged. He starts running around, flipping over tables. He pulls out a whip of cords, and his explanation is found here in verse 16. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Jesus was angry over the glory of God. When you diminish the glory of God, that should well up within a believer a righteous anger. Let's look at another story. Mark chapter 3. Jesus is in a synagogue. It's the Sabbath, and a man comes up to him with a withered hand. Now, we don't know what happened to this man's hand. It could have been crushed in an uh, an accident while he was grinding at the millstone. He could have been born this way. But when you use that descriptor, withered, you know that this guy has a serious problem, don't you? And the, the Pharisees are looking at Jesus when this guy comes up to him, and they're wondering if Jesus is going to heal him on the Sabbath. They've gotten the cart before the horse. And Jesus asks them this question. Is it lawful on this Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? Look at their response. But they 
were silent. They didn't care about the guy. And the text says he looked around at them with anger. Another time to be righteously angry is when people are mistreated, when they are made to be less human than human. Let's talk about anger for one more moment. Anger is a tricky emotion as well because we don't typically know that we're angry until we've probably stepped pretty far into a confrontation or a situation. I know there's been times that I've realized that I've spoken out of anger and I didn't realize that I was getting heated in the situation until it was too late. Uh, I've had some great advice from Jan Wyant. She's a member here at Osterville Baptist Church. And uh, we've talked a little bit about anger, and she said this, that anger generally presents itself physiologically. There's a physical effect before there's a cognitive recognition that you're mad. Some people get a tightening in the chest. My cheeks grow flush. So when you understand that physiological effect, then you can do something to uh, cut the anger off at the pass. And I think that Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, gives us some good words here. It says, be angry and do not sin. So it's never wrong to be angry, but it's wrong to sin. So the question is, well, how do you turn that anger into righteous action? Thomas Jefferson used to say, when angry, count to 10 before you speak. When very angry, count to 100 Now, Mark Twain, playing upon this advice, said that when angry, count to four, and when very angry, swear. I really hope you don't follow that advice or tune out this sermon at that point, because that's terrible advice. Uh, Nehemiah takes a much different approach. Look at verse 7b, the second part, or the first part of 7, excuse me. He says, I took counsel with myself. So there's a step between anger and action. And the step is called processing. Anger itself does not provide clarity to a situation. It's more of a warning signal. Before you act, you need to get a hold of reality. You need to understand the situation. You need to understand how you're feeling. You need to understand what you're going to do. And only then, and only then, should you act. Who do we vent to? When I look at the scriptures and I see how anger is processed, and I believe this is what Nehemiah is doing here, the only rightful source for venting to occur is God. I can't tell you how many times I have sinned with my mouth under the guise that I am just venting. I look at uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. Remember that uh, text there, be angry and do not sin. But then as you carry the flow on forward, verse 29 says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good to those who hear. And so as I am struggling with anger and I'm venting to another person, I am probably not benefiting them in my venting. God is the only one that can hear my gobbledygook, muddled thoughts about a situation, and he knows the full story so he doesn't form a half-drawn conclusion about a person. He's the only one that can look back at this situation and say, you know, Rob, you're a real mess too. And let me tell you a little bit about it. And that's why venting to God is such a helpful practice in life. That's why I believe Nehemiah handles himself so well in this passage. So step one, collect yourself. Step two, direct confrontation. 
I love the fact that Nehemiah doesn't stop at step one. Step two is very important. Look at the text, verse 7b and forward. He says this, I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of God to prevent the taunts of the nation, our enemies? Pretty serious charges, aren't they? I want you to notice a couple of things that he does in this confrontation. First, he brings the confrontation public immediately. Now, we know in conflict resolution that it's generally best to start in public or private. Private. Uh, Matthew 18 actually gives that as an encouragement in cases of church discipline. Verse 15, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And then that conversation starts moving more public. It goes to two and then to the entire church. But there's also situations described in the uh, scriptures where uh, a conflict is brought public almost immediately. First Timothy Chapter 5, Paul says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that they may stand in fear. So what is the correlation between 1 Timothy 5 and Nehemiah 5 here? I think it is that you have highly visible people in highly visible sin. Highly visible people in highly visible sin. The nobles had been making a public mockery of the law of God. They were stepping on the backs of their own brothers. And if the the community of faith were to allow this to continue forward, they would not be the distinct people of God that they need to be. I want you to notice something else here. Nehemiah's charge is scriptural. It's scripturally based. When you confront someone over something, you need to quote the Bible. Don't pull out that big, fat, dusty King James Bible and beat them over the head with it. That's not what I'm talking about here. But you need to make reference to the scriptures when you're talking about them. Can I just say this? I don't care what you think. I don't. And you don't care what I think. Because I think thoughts and half my thoughts are just goofy in nature. I love the fact that there's tools out there that would help me to move forward in life, but before I ever hear a tool, I need to hear the truth because I'm a sinner and I'm selfish and I'm going to keep doing what I want to do until I'm confronted with the word of God and I understand what is right and what is wrong. And this is what Nehemiah does here. Notice um, the charges that he lays out, verse 7 They're charging interest to their fellow countrymen. What does the law of God say about that? Exodus 22. If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you are not to act as a creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest. 
Deuteronomy 23, same thing. You shall not charge interest to your countrymen. You could also translate countrymen as brother. Verse 20, so that the Lord your God may bless you. You see that tie here? God wants the people of Israel to live distinctly, to treat each other rightly, and he wants the nations to look on and say, why are they prospering? They're not charging interest to their fellow countrymen. How is this possible? Verse 8, another charge. They were enslaving fellow Jews, which is wrong. Leviticus 25, 39 to 40. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner, and he shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee where he will actually be released from that debt. What is the effect when the people of God live as if the law of God doesn't matter? Look at verse nine. The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunt of the nations, our enemies? Nehemiah is basically saying to them, you're no different than Sambalot or Tobiah, our enemies. They're doing all of the same things and they're looking on and they're saying, see, Israel's no different than we are. Oh, they're talking about building a wall for the glory of God. <laughs> they're no different from us. You see, when the people of God do not live as a distinct people of God, evangelism suffers. Evangelism will suffer 100% of the time when we don't live out our distinct identity. When people look on at the local church that's infighting and goes through a nasty, vicious, bloodthirsty split, the community looks on and says, see, I told you that church isn't that big of a deal. They say that they're a bunch of changed lives, changing lives. But there's no life change going on there. Is God stirring your heart for Cape Cod? If he is, we must be a pure church. D.L. Moody said this, a holy life will produce the deepest impression. Lighthouses blow no horns. They only shine. Step two, confrontation. Step three, outline steps to correct the problem. What does it mean to take responsibility? How do you help someone along the way? How do we, if God's identified a sin in our own life, move forward? I've always disliked that preaching style where the preacher just gets up and tells everybody what's wrong. I could put together a list of 100 verses and go off next week for an hour and a half about all the things that are wrong. That's really easy. Now, I think preachers need to identify what's wrong, but people also need a pathway forward to do what is right. In fact, this is what we see in the epistles. The Apostle Paul, Ephesians 4.28 he says, let the thief no longer steal. Stealing's wrong. He's not afraid to identify that as something that is wrong. But then look as the verse continues. But rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, 
So how do we take steps towards obedience in the Christian life? I think there's three things that we see here in this text. If you look at verse 10, the first thing Nehemiah tells them to do is to determine to stop. It says, Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money um, and grain, but let us exact or abandon this exacting of interest. You can do things the right way, nobles. You can lend to people without doing things wrong. Drive a nail into the ground today. Say, I'm not going to do this anymore. God has given each one of us a will. And that will helps us to determine what our next steps are going to be. When he identifies a sinful pattern in your life, you have to determine to stop. No one has ever weaned themselves off of a sin. The moment that you think that you can dabble and continue, the moment you are further driven into bondage with that sin. I want you to notice another thing here. Make plans to make things right. Verse 11, Nehemiah says, Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and their percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. And what, would, what was their response? We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. If you've ever sinned against someone, your sinfulness has caused a wake. And that wake has caused damage. What has been the effects of your anger in the house with your spouse and your kids? What have been the effects of you cheating someone out of money? Have you ever gossiped? Have you ever seen that gossip cause other people to think poorly of another person? How do you plan to make it right? True repentance is a sincere desire to make things right. You cannot undo the past. Okay, let's just be clear on that. You're not going to jump in a time machine, go back to that moment that you wish you could have back and make it right there. But you can make amends right now and you can commit to doing things right in the future. Third thing, commit to your plans in a promise before God and before others. Look there at um, verses 12 and 13 onward. Nehemiah grounds this by sealing the deal in a promise with God. I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and empty. And all the assembly said, Amen. And praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. We people are a squirrely bunch. You will get emotionally excited about making a change to your life and then you will get emotionally unexcited. The best way to drive the nail into the ground is to commit to the decision in an accountability style relationship. Find someone else that you trust, someone that will listen to you, someone that you'll listen to, someone that you can be transparent with and that you give the right to hold you accountable. Make that commitment before God and you'll move forward. Now what if we reject the, the scripture's teaching this morning? What if we persist in a sinful pattern in our life if we move forward in that direction? 
I think that we'll find that there will be spiritual erosion in our life. Chuck Swindoll shares this story that El, uh, well illustrates the consequences of erosion. He says, A very close friend of mine purchased what he and his wife hoped would be their last home. When the job was finished, he went through the normal procedure of inspecting the work and collecting a punch list. A number of workmanship issues were resolved satisfactorily, and he found nothing major. He and his wife signed the final documents and settled into their new home. Within a few weeks, doors and windows began to stick. Then cracks appeared in the tile and the walls, far more and much larger than was normal when you had the settling process of a home. The house deteriorated at a startling pace. Something was very wrong. My friend hired an engineer to study the problem, and his investigation uncovered a terrible secret. Old topographical maps revealed that the house had been constructed over a ravine. The developers had filled it in, but apparently water continued to run through this ravine beneath the house, carrying minute amounts of soil away from the foundation of the house. Everything looked fine, while deep down the earth eroded away. Eventually, the strain on the slab proved to be too much, and it cracked with devastating results. The house could not be repaired or sold. It was a complete loss. Would you bow your heads with me as we process the end of this sermon together? I want you to think on the scriptures this morning. A similar erosion process happens in the life of many people. F.B. Meyer once wrote, No man suddenly becomes base. No, the process is much more insidious. Perhaps you are finding that there's issues in your spiritual house this morning. You're looking at the walls and you're starting to see cracks. The windows are sticking. The foundation seems to be crumbling. God has identified a real issue in your life. How do you intend to move forward? My encouragement to you is twofold. The first is to start with the gospel. The precious gospel of Jesus Christ says that Jesus died for sinners just like you and me. You can't pick yourself up by your bootstraps. You can't say, I'm going to work a little harder and fix this problem. You need the same forgiveness and grace that you needed when you first trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so you turn to him, the God of all grace, and you ask for that grace to be manifest in your life once again. Secondly, rely on the Holy Spirit. He will help you to appropriate the steps above. Dig into God's word. Hear the Spirit-inspired word of God to you. Seek his face in prayer. And surround yourself with strong Christians you can trust who will help you to walk faithfully in this life. Let's pray.